I mentioned that we were going to be in 2 Peter again tonight since we did uh, 1 Peter on Sunday mornings and we finished that out. I'm wanting to expose you some to 2 Peter and we're actually going to be in chapter 3 tonight. May finish out 2 Peter tonight. We may uh, be in it again next week. But uh, as I've indicated to you, uh, just be reading up on Nehemiah because we're going to be jumping in to Nehemiah soon and doing a study through that book. And that will line up nicely with the study that we just got done with on Malachi because they're both from the same period of time. But tonight I want to talk about the subject matter like a thief in the night. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 1 he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept unto the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, we know that these are very anxious days for a lot of people around the globe People are constantly today watching the news headlines and watching the news, uh, the, the situation in the news all around the world. And of course now everybody's wondering about this guy in North Korea, you know, what's he going to do? And so there's just a lot of unrest in the world today that is nothing new to 2017. It's been going on for a number of years now. The blind optimism of former days, uh, many decades ago, is long gone. It's been long gone for about 50 years or more. Somebody recently said, a survey of the world leaves one with the uncomfortable feeling that 
In spite of the efforts of many well-intentioned men in every country, civilization is sliding downhill. Now, that would be a hopeless story indeed, wouldn't it? If it were not for the gospel, for the Christian message. We, says Peter, according to Christ's promise, are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, discussion of the return of Jesus and the end of the world has always been a topic of great fascination. But folks, the Bible doesn't present it for mere fascination. The Bible presents it as motivation for preparation so that we will be ready. In other words, don't be left behind. Be ready whatever happens. The Bible says broad is the road and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few find it. Uh, Broad is the way, excuse me. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that travel that road. But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few find it. We need to be ready. Be prepared. And that's what Peter is talking about here. First of all, if you're taking notes tonight, we need to recognize present dangers. Recognize present dangers. You'll want to write that down. Point number one, if you're taking notes and looking at verses 1 to 7. Right off, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, Peter had experienced a failure in his own life before Pentecost because he did not remember the word of the Lord. And so when he told them to be mindful and remember, I'm sure these words had a very special significance for him. He wants his readers to give very special attention to what he's about to say. And so he says, I want you to think about these words. I want you to think about these truths that I'm about to present to you. And I want you to be mindful of them. It's amazing in the scripture in the New Testament. How with our minds we're to be ready. We're to think about the great doctrines of our faith. And we're to think about the great and precious promises that God's given to us. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter says we're to gird up the loins of our mind. Readiness, preparedness. Paul says in Romans 12 too that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You know, with our minds, we absorb so much of the false thinking in the world. I was reading just the other day a wonderful little book by John R.W. Stott entitled, The Mind Matters, or Your Mind Matters. And he was talking about the importance of thinking. 
thinking about our faith and dwelling on things that God has told us in his word. And he was talking about how in the liberal churches they tend to do social action and they don't want to think about sound doctrine. They emphasize doing but not thinking. Amen. Got an amen corner up here. Some of y'all need to join him. And then in the charismatic churches, they emphasize feeling or experience. And here again, they don't want to think. And he was saying in the evangelical church, we need to base our experience and our feelings and our doing on sound doctrine. Our minds need to be fully engaged. When we come to Christ, we're to devote our minds to the study of God's Word. Our minds are to be transformed. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. God said in His Word, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to study God's Word. Well, one of the things Peter wants us to remember is that the Word of God plainly warns that scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. Look at verse 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, when are they going to come? They're going to come in the last days. When are the last days? Now? But how long have we been in the last days? Since the first coming of Christ. Remember Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost? When he was explaining what was going on, he said this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days and what you're seeing today is what Joel said would happen in the last days meaning that we're in the last days we've been in the last days now for more than 2,000 years we're in the last days because the coming of Christ is the climax of God speaking to his people. There's not some greater way on the horizon that God is going to speak to his people. Jesus was the fulfillment of the old covenant and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. And so when he came, the last days were inaugurated. Remember Hebrews 1.1? How it said in the former times, God spoke to us in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. So since Jesus, we've been in the last days. <sighs> Folks, the last days are marvelous in the sense that we live in the day of grace. Aren't you glad we live in the day when... We look to Christ and what he did at Calvary and we don't have to go to the temple every week dragging along sacrifices with us. Making sure we all those lambs and stuff that we bring to the temple without spot, without blemish and we're constantly bringing those things to the temple and sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Aren't you glad we live in the last days? Where the full and complete sacrifice for sin has been made in Christ. 
But while these are marvelous days, the last days are also dangerous days. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people... People turn away. And so while God is at work in marvelous ways, Satan is also at work in sinister ways. Perilous times that we live in. Folks, it's important to see that the final chapter of human history is now being written. Soon, Jesus Christ is going to return for his bride. Might be tonight. Jesus said, no man knows the hour. We can see signs, but we don't know when. It's foolish to try to set dates. But again, the emphasis is on simply being ready. When he returns, not only will the earth and the heavens be eventually destroyed, but Peter says here he's going to recreate everything, the whole universe, both the heavens and the earth. And the new heavens and the new earth will be the home of those who have followed Jesus Christ. Now, being the last days... What are we going to do about it? Are we going to attach ourselves to the world that is passing away and be destroyed with it? Or are we going to attach ourselves to Jesus Christ and enter into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth? We've got a tremendous Christian hope. There's a better place coming for the saints of God. A place of glory. A place void of sin and the consequences of sin. But in the meantime, what does Peter say here? Peter says you and I will have to come up against scoffers. Who are they? Well, we meet them every day. We hear their voices every day in modern society. They're scoffers who deny the only Savior, Jesus Christ. They are people who don't believe the gospel. In verse 3, Peter says they don't believe because they want to walk how? They want to walk according to their sinful desires or their lusts. It's not they can't believe, they don't want to believe. They love sin too much. To believe would demand change and they're not willing to do that. And so they scoff at the Christian message and they scoff at our Christian hope. Again, we hear their voices every day in a secular society, don't we? Scoffers. Have you noticed it seems like every, um, every Christmas season or every Easter season, have you noticed how these scoffers always want to come out at those times of the year with TV specials trying to prove that 
Jesus is not who the Bible said he is or he wasn't raised from the dead or something. They're scoffers. And Peter says they're all around in a modern society. And we just need to realize as the church, they're there. And we're going to have to defend the faith against them because they lead many people astray. Scoffers even deny that Jesus is coming again. Look at verse 4. He says in verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They say, where is he? If he's real, if he's Lord, then why hasn't he come back yet? Or they go on to say, he's not coming because everything just continues as it always has. They try to say that this world is a closed system where God doesn't ever intervene in the lives of his people or in his creation. Scoffers forget what God's already done, Peter says here. In verses 5 and 6, he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What he's talking about here is a philosophy known as uniformitarianism uniformitarianism which says that all natural phenomena have operated uniformly since the beginning of the earth what again what they're implying is the earth is a closed system and God never intervenes nothing ever changes God doesn't do anything But this is not true, is it? And Peter tells why it's not true. He gives us a couple of case studies here, doesn't he? Of why uniformitarianism is not true. It's not true because, first of all, look at creation. God spoke and the world was. God said, let there be light, and what? There was light. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke the world into existence. In other words, God has intervened. God has spoken. God has done something in his world that he's created. Case number two, uh, Peter points out here, is he destroyed the world with the flood. That, that was certainly an intervention of God, wasn't it? Now, Peter could have mentioned other things the way Jude did. You know, Jude went on to even add to this list. Jude mentions the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He could also have cited how God broke into history in the incarnation, the greatest way of all. But whatever examples Peter could have cited... It would not matter to these scoffers because these scoffers are determined that whatever the biblical account says, they're not going to believe it. Look at the words he uses here. They deliberately overlook. 
they deliberately overlook. They look with 20-20 vision at what the Word of God says, and they outright dismiss it. They refuse to believe it. Do men still do that today? <laughs> you better believe it. Take the instance of the flood. It's, am it's amazing how in the geological record there's evidence. There's evidence for Noah's flood. Geologists and scientists, those who are Christians anyway, see this and they talk about it. They talk about how clear it is. They, they see all the physical evidence of what happened in Genesis 6 through 9. But others look at it, just outright deny it or try to explain it away. It's funny listening to um, John Morris. John and Henry Morris. You ever hear them? Mm-hmm. John Morris, a geologist, a dedicated believer, talks about Mount St. Helens. You know, uh, the typical geologist would look at Mount St. Helens and say, what happened here took millions. If you didn't know what had happened, the, the average geologist would say, what, what happened here took millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And he says, no, it didn't. It took what? Six hours. Right? Seriously. Isn't it also interesting how just about every single ancient culture has a story to tell about the flood? The uh, Babylonian uh, epic of Gilgamesh now these other ancient stories, they attach fables and all this other kind of stuff to their flood stories. But, it, but isn't it interesting how all ancient cultures have a flood story? Now, why do you think that is? Because there was a flood. But again, the scoffers scoff because they want to live in their own Sinful desires and lust. Exactly. They want to do what they want to do. and They don't want to face up to the fact of a sovereign God that man is accountable to. They want to be free of all restraint. And so they willfully choose to ignore all of the evidence and the word of God itself. But Peter says God has judged and destroyed this world before. And Peter is saying that is evidence that God will do it again. If God has done it before, God will do it again. Secondly, Peter wants us to understand present preservation. Understand present preservation. Verse 7. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept unto the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This earth is only preserved now by God's word and God's will. 
back five or six decades ago, people were scared that somebody was going to push a button and blow up the world. There were all these movies about the Russians, right? And they had this red button, and the Americans had a red, everybody had a red button. Some, somebody was going to push a button and, and blow up the world. In other words, the future of this world, they were saying, is in man's hands. Folks, it's not in man's hands. God holds the future, not man. If men bring the world to an end, it's only because men are simply acting as vessels of God in the hands of a sovereign God. I think of Judas. Jesus said to his disciples, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you, and yet one of you is a devil. Folks, men are not directing the course of human history. God is. History is his story. Now, does this mean that men are not accountable? No. What it means is that God takes the unbelief of men that they themselves are accountable for and he's able to even use their unbelief for his purposes. He's able to channel their or to use their deeds for his purposes. They're still responsible because their unbelief the sovereignty of God is intended to be one of the most comforting doctrines in the scripture. He is the God who is able to work out Romans 8.28. Where Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I love the NAS translation of Romans 8.28. Uh, the NAS says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is able to take even the devil's sword and to cut the devil's head off with his own sword. Right? Think about Calvary. Don't you know Satan and the demons were rejoicing when Jesus breathed his last and he died? But then they discovered Jesus' death at Calvary was actually God's plan for man's redemption. Satan might have just thought he was putting the Son of God to death. Satan was inspiring wicked men to do this. But it was God's plan. I think of Joseph too being sold into slavery and ended up in prison in Egypt. But in prison God used Joseph in the interpretation of dreams and he became the prime minister of Egypt and he ended up telling his brothers don't be afraid because what you meant for evil God meant for good. Folks, God is even able to take man's unbelief and man's evil and man's sin and use it for his purposes. The point is, 
that all that is going on in the world is not out of God's hands. God is not some pathetic deity sitting on some little miserable throne in heaven saying, oh dear, what am I going to do? Look at what man's doing. How am I going to clean this up? What am I going to do? They're just throwing a monkey wrench in my, in my plans. No, nope, that's not the case at all. God's in control. And he's not surrendered the reins of the universe one bit. The whole point is we need to understand the world right now is preserved. It's not yet destroyed because God hasn't yet decreed for it to be destroyed. Now, before God decrees it, all the wars on the face of the earth will not spell the end. But once God decrees it, all the peace on earth can't pre prevent it from coming to pass. Third thing Peter wants us to, to realize... Be assured of God's timing. Be assured of God's timing. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's he point out there in verse 8? God's timing is different than man's timing, isn't it? A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. In other words, if you're eternal the way God is, what's time? I mean, what's, what's a thousand years here or there to God? What's ten thousand years here or there to God? God's eternal. From eternity past to eternity future. I mean that blows your mind when you think of eternity, doesn't it? There's never been a time that God was not. Go back a trillion years, he's still there. Another trillion, still there. Keep going, keep going further and further and further. He's still there. Never been a time that he wasn't. What's a thousand years to God? Peter is saying these scoffers, these scoffers who are saying, oh, you Christians, look, look at what you believe. Jesus hadn't come back yet and righted all the wrongs in the world and fulfilled all the promises in the New Testament. He's not going to come. Y'all are believing a fable or something. It's not going to happen. Peter says they're forgetting God's sense of timing. They're looking at timing the way man looks at time. God's eternal. God is not slack. Verse 9. He's not a procrastinator. He's not slack concerning his promise. What's his promise? The promise of the deliverance of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. 
Verse 9, he goes on to say, God's long-suffering, not only is he timeless, but he's tender. Delays in the end are for the purposes of the preaching of the gospel. God is long-suffering because he's not willing that any should perish. As Jesus said to, to Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The delay is so the gospel can go to the ends of the world, as Jesus said in the gospel of Matthew. That this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, must be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end shall come. The re He's patient. The reason for the delay is so that we can be carrying out the mission that he's given to us so men can hear the good news and come to Christ. Fourthly, be ready for coming destruction and recreation. Be ready for coming destruction and recreation. He says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and works that are done on it will be exposed. The end is coming, Peter says. Make no mistake about it. Now, as long as we're here, of course, we're to work for the betterment of the world. We're to be, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. We're not to say, well, if the world's coming to, to an end and all that, then we just don't care about anything. No. God's left us here for a purpose. But our hope is elsewhere. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In verse 10, he assures us that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. It'll be sudden. All of a sudden, people will be caught by surprise. What did Jesus say? Two would be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Two working in the field, one taken, one left. Jesus said, if a man knows what time a burglar is going to come break in his house, he stays awake and he's waiting on him. But we don't know. His coming's going to be like a thief in the night. And in verse 10, he points out it'll be a day of total destruction. There will be a total destruction of the earth as we know it. Revelation 21, after this happens, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Folks, just as God spoke the world into existence, He's going to speak it out of existence. Man's hand on a button isn't going to wipe out the earth. God's Word is what's going to wipe it out. There. Yes. Mm hmm. Yep. New heavens and new earth. But I tell you what, there's going to be global warming, all right, okay? 
people are trying to fight against global warming, there's going to be global warming. God's going to do it. What's Peter say here in verse 10? How's God going to do it? He's going to burn it all up. Man can't prevent that global warming. And then God will make all things new. New heavens and a new earth. William Barclay says, In biblical thought, the last time is the end of one age and the beginning of another. It is not only a time of ending, it is a time of new beginning. It is not only a time of destruction, it is a time of recreation. It is last in the sense that things... As they are pass away, but leads not to world obliteration, but world recreation. In other words, the last hour and the last days lead not to extinction, but to consummation. Now here's the real point that Peter gets to. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So let me start to wrap this up. Wrap up this sermon by giving you another sermon in closing, okay? Had four points in the first sermon. I got six points in this one. Point number one, be holy. Live for God. Isn't that what Peter's saying? Be holy. Live for God. Second point, be looking. Verse 13, be looking. God is precise in his timing. When will it happen? It'll happen on time. When is that? On time. It won't be a minute too soon or a minute too late. He says, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth. We're to be looking. Peter is telling his audience, these scoffers who want to attack the church and they want to make fun of Christians and they, they want to try to slice up the Bible and throw half of it away and all that. Peter's saying, church, don't give those scoffers two cents worth of your attention. We serve a God who can be trusted. And if he's promised that he's coming again, he's coming again. If he's promised that he's making all things new, he's going to make all things new. If he's promised that you're going to enjoy the consummation of your salvation, your salvation is going to be consummated one day. And you're going to see Jesus. You're going to be like him because we will see him as he is. As John says in 1 John. You're going to have that glorified body just like his. 
So he says, be looking for that. At night, as Dr. Horatius Bonar retired to rest, his last action before he lay down to sleep was to draw aside the curtain and look into the starry sky and say, perhaps tonight, Lord, perhaps tonight. In the morning as he arose, his first movement was to raise the blinds, look out upon the gray dawn and remark, perhaps today, Lord, perhaps today. Be looking. Third point, as we are looking, we need to be laying up our treasures in heaven. Treasures on earth won't last. What's going to happen to this earth and everything in it? going to be burned up. If all your treasures are here on earth, guess what? You won't have any treasures. That's why Jesus said we're to lay up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. Where's your treasure? Number four... Hasten the day. Hasten the day. Now that's an interesting phrase in verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's an interesting statement because in God's sovereignty, it's in God's hand and He knows precisely the moment. And at the same time, he seems to be saying that through the carrying out of the Great Commission, perhaps it can be quickened. The time of its arrival can be quickened. He says we're to live in such a way to hasten the day. Fifthly, be stable. Let's read on in verses 17 to 18. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't grow complacent. Don't grow doubtful. Don't grow lazy in your devotion. Be stable and grow in the Lord. And don't listen to lawless men. And then the last point, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Grow in knowledge, grow in grace. Put the knowledge to work, live the truth. Grow and be prepared so that whether it's tonight or a hundred years from now, you and I will be able to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. May our response be like this. Make me holy by thy blood. Make me godly, Lamb of God. Keep me busy in the fray. Make me ready for that day. Amen? Amen. Keep growing and glowing. Yep. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. A wonderful passage of hope that Peter gives to believers. 
We live in the midst of the world of scoffers. But we have a God that we can trust. In 2 Peter 1, remember he says what? Holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This word is God's word. How much of it? All of it. If God said it, you and I can trust it. And we can build our lives on it. So be looking. Because he's coming like a thief in the night. So we need to be ready.